Good evening, this is the Goethe Report. Tonight, part two of our conversation with the Yellow Jacket Avenger. Now, Jeff, this final song takes us back to 1993. It's called Secret Agent and the Hydro and Hydro Line. Correct. Set this track up for us. What's going on? Mm. Well, um, I guess the reason that I, I, I chose this track was um, it seemed to be uh, the earliest tune I had on record uh, that I was most proud of. And, you know, and I, I felt like I kind of reached a, a, a new place in my writing at the time, trying to incorporate the lyric and the counterbalance to, to the melody somehow here were up until then, I think um, a lot of things had been accidents and hopefully happy accidents, but this was uh, calculated. Mm. And um, I remember writing those words um, at a friend's cottage uh, one summer, you know, when we were chatting about the Loch Ness monster and we're sitting on the dock, of course, and I was looking for anything out <laughs> on the water. And I, I think I got that line crease on the water must be some sort of reptile. And the rest of the song just kind of been unfolded from there. But um, I can't tell you specifically what it's about, but maybe it's um, what's more interesting to me, at least like uh, in this weird sort of uh, psychological way, you know, looking back uh, at a 17 year old now being a 46 year old and thinking, huh, you, you really meant that. <laughs> That's the thing that uh, does that whole story seems to uh, bring forth to me very effectively is, is, is like you get in and get out in the context of the song very quickly. Uh, I, and for the first time I'm using kind of really conscious bridges and key changes, key change, pretty damn new um, at the time for me. And so I felt pretty, you know, proud of it. And, uh, but I think it's uh, what's, weird about it in sort of an eerie way is that there's this, you know, sort of um, a, a distrust at play at the uh, authorities, perhaps, uh, even bef before I'd actually, you know, established one in any constructive way. Uh, uh, the roots, the sentiments are there, this, this, this uh, intense uh, suspicion, <laughs> perhaps, mm. whether warranted or not, who knows. But... Uh, yeah, it's it's about, you know, it seems to be, uh, there's a reference to a woman named Margaret in the song. Isn't that right? My friend Margaret, keep that smile where it is. I've got a camera. I think I'll capture it. Uh, so that could have been uh, a reference to my friend's stepmom, who I had a crush on at the time, Margaret, or uh, Mary Margaret O'Hara, the uh, singer. Mm. Uh, but it would seem that Margaret, whoever she was, <laughs> didn't meet a great, fate at the end of this song which i think is just yeah a lot gets done in under three minutes or whatever it is um you know uh he finds her in entangled in in a you know vine of electrical cords by the tube she sat patiently with a deploying smile crease on the water must be some sort of reptile <laughs> yeah there's there's lots of fun uh, lyrics in there you know that uh, 
are ambiguous enough, but uh, I was able to kind of tie them in a way together that I was really happy with, I guess. And uh, in a way, listening to that as, um, uh, geez, uh, almost 30 years later, I kind of, uh, I'm very jealous of whoever wrote that song in a way. Uh, I'd love to find that place again. Um, why, so why is that? Like what? The spontaneity, mm-hmm. the confidence too, somehow, um, despite having a lot of technical abilities. I mean, I don't hear it that way as a, that's the only one that I really don't hear as a 17 year old uh, playing these instruments sort of thing, which just because it's normal to be critical of yourself as you evolve as an artist, obviously. But that one just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, um, it uh, reminds me of a time uh, that is not necessarily gone, but, you know, the more you practice at things, uh, I feel like sometimes the more we pollute things, at least in my experience, and I liked how succinct that, you know, the whole process around that, tune came together you know it was written and lyrics and probably you know 20 minutes and somehow i had i'd found great music uh very easily to accompany it um i thought in those uh chord progressions i was playing it on the piano the other day and i noticed that there was like whoa that's a weird that's definitely the first time i ever used that sort of voicing uh you know quarterly or something or this sort of shift it was like you know um yeah i don't know i i guess uh maybe that person's not gone uh, perhaps just dormant or, or under a bunch of wet towels at the moment creatively. So <laughs> I think when I'm feeling kind of like, oh, I want to, you know, write again, I, I have listened to that in the more in particular in the last year or so, because I, I put together a compilation called love lives or love lives, which is on my band camp, which is, I don't know, 25 or 30 tracks uh, spanning 93 to 03. And that was uh, definitely uh, something that I, I thought was, hmm, I, I would actually give all the rest of them away. I'd be happy with just that. Uh, hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's a ridiculous thing to say, but uh, yeah. What was that? Uh, there was some, some sort of voice near, near the end of the song in the background. Oh yeah. It sounded almost like, a distant radio transmission and at times like Porky Pig. Uh, yeah, I think, um, as I recall, that that would have been like uh, FM radio that I, I picked up and then recorded, um, perhaps of, of, of some sort of Christian uh, radio show. I can't remember what the character says at the end. It's, it's sort of eerie. And there he was, like a light. I couldn't believe it or something like that. <laughs> and then I think there is uh, some Looney Tunes in there as well. Uh, oh, so are, it was, was part perhaps Porky Pig there. Yeah, I think I think there is like a bit of that slowed down at the same time. So, if, you know, at the, at the time, of course, I was only working with uh, four. For your audience who doesn't understand that concept, uh, you know, there's only, you know, so many tracks that you can use and uh, over time we've of course found a way to have uh, too many but at the time the format was rather limited and you had to be rather calculated about how you did things 
so that one, you know, the guitar would have been one track, the voice would have been another, and perhaps those those little radio clips would have come in on three and four panned, um, you know, hard left and hard right, which was you know so in, uh, invigorating at the time to produce something like that, uh, like Ooh, left and right. <laughs> far left and right <laughs> this, yeah i think less is more and maybe that's just what that song uh that's why that song speaks to me in a way like, hey you did it you wrote a good song and you didn't need much you know so no these gadgets and stuff uh, and knowledge of uh, how to put things together properly you know I often try to yeah, get away from that as much as possible. Let me ask you this. How do you know a song is finished? Oh, geez. That's a good question. Um, um, it is. Hmm. Well, I mean, sometimes it's easier than others. Uh, like, I don't know if there's like uh, one rule for all. But if you, if I find myself, you know, um, well, if I find myself adding things like nonstop, I know that that translates to that I'm not satisfied with the song. <laughs> so I found myself that in that position many times where I'll, you know, overwork something in hopes of making it good, but at core it's just not really worth my time. Just work, you know. And I'm trying to will it into uh, something, um, you know, meaningful. Uh, in terms of like really establishing rules as to when things are done, done like dinner. You know, I, I like I like to get most things done in no more than three mixes. You know, like if I go beyond three mixes, and I'm looking at like you know. Do we need other instrumentation here or something, you know, radical, like, okay, let's just pull the guitar and put a piano. I mean, sometimes that works, you know, um, songs can linger for a long time. Some of them, you know, some of them come together really quickly and there's not a lot of fat to trim, you know, um, and others can go on for years and just be this source of like great frustration. Like you just can't figure it out. Like, why can't I make this work in my mind? And then one day you're like, okay, because it's, it's, you know, it's always supposed to be supposed to have been a piano there instead of, you know, a horn section. And it can be something as simple as that, but yeah, letting go of songs is really hard. I think for a lot of people, particularly in this day and age, when I talk to friends who are writing and recording, you know, that's typically they go hand in hand now. Right. Um, that's part of the problem too, is, is not knowing when to turn off the faucet. Um, you know, back in the days when you, well, not that people don't, but you know, when you walk into a studio, the idea is the clock is running, you're paying for it. There's not a lot of mucking about, about unless you are a rock star and can afford that, you know, because it's expensive to be in the studio. So yeah. What song at the top of your head took the longest to make? Huh. Uh, I, I know there is one at the top of my head. I mean, there's been a number of them. Jeez. Uh, well, I mean, there's songs that sat around sort of, you know, in a pile. Perhaps I had this is one song also um, called uh, One More Nightmare. 
that's on my album Stray Lovers that that stuck around for about six or seven years. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it never found its place on like three or four albums. <laughs> you know, I just like, I, okay, you know, I plan for it. Like when I you know, sit down and write an album or, or I realize that I'm starting an album around song two or three, I'm like, okay, these go together. What else is there? How many do we need to get the story across? And, um, I would try to insert that one in various places and different, like I have so many versions of that song, but I think I've only released two, but in the end I realized, okay, well maybe we need them all. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know, but yeah, that one uh, definitely sat around for a long time. I mean, some people have, you know, spent years on certainly albums. I'm not sure about one composition. I mean, um, yeah, I can, again, back to kind of overwriting or being your own producer, editor sort of thing is very interesting phenomenon. It can be uh, really beneficial to the overall uh, track or it can uh, take take away from the spontaneity, you know, that uh, one might find uh, in other musical environments where you, you haven't worked things over to the point that they resemble, like, you know, uh, charcoal charcoal to pork chop or something but i can always hear in my ears i mean i would never say this to anybody when they've taken something to that point mm. they've kind of like it might have been a good song you know last year or or five or six mix, mixes ago but because you went here for it because maybe you should have sought counsel at this point you know because to get you out of the loop before you did the 1400 mixes or whatever. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that we should, we should all do for each other. Like it's good to get out of your own echo chamber, you know? Uh, and you know, as early as possible, if you think you have something good and chances are you do and just bounce it off two or three people. And maybe there's a couple things you missed, but once you get into the, the sort of, yeah, hyper dissecting um you know almost you know ocd level relationship with the writing and recording it doesn't matter what anybody says to you you're so convinced that it's either this or that and yeah i wonder if you know in retrospect i look back and yeah i spent way too much time on that one it could have been done here but you know i learned a few things and uh, it might have helped uh, with another piece down the line who do you go to for advice or counsel? Um, generally old friends who happen to be musicians who we've, uh, yeah, I can think of a couple or, or non-musicians who are just love music lovers. Um, yeah, I kind of go to the same three or four people actually for years. And, and likewise though, it's a nice relationship. It's nice back and forth. They'll send me their stuff and, and we've gotten to a place where we're, yeah, we're really honest with each other. And sometimes it's kind of hard to take. Like I'll, I'll have a friend say, you know, said to me about a year ago or something. And he was like, well, it seems like you're kind of doing the Jeff thing here. <laughs> but he had a point. He was right. He's like, yeah, I am kind of doing the Jeff thing here. Like I've, I've established this motif, uh, perhaps, you know, to a fault. <laughs> and, uh, Maybe this uh, this new thing is you know that's how you heard it and, and uh, it's a little hard to take at first after all those months I spent on it but I realized man you know what? he's right 
ways. <laughs> I have to admit it. I mean, uh, so I try to be open to that and and hear it through other people's ears as much as possible. You know, I think that's uh, a good way to yeah get a you know have a community kind of in on it uh, that you trust. Um, yeah. So. What's the worst advice you've ever received? About music? About anything. Could be music <laughs> or anything. The worst advice? I, I feel like I've ignored a lot of good advice, so it's hard for me to hone in on. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I'd answer that, to be honest. Or maybe put another way... Uh, could you think of an example of where someone gave you a piece of advice and you went with it and then realized oh. you'd made a mistake? Okay. Actually, I, I have a funny story uh, that, yeah, that, <laughs> uh, that helps actually that I was just telling uh, to my ex as we were recalling an old friend of ours uh, who will remain nameless. And uh, maybe 15 years ago, I was working on an album on this uh, digital device that was rather new to me and stuff. It had like an eight-track digital recorder thing that was, you know, they're still great, actually. They do the same job as a computer. You know, dedicated musical digital you know, console thing that you put in your backpack and muck around with. And one day I turned it on and the screen was blank and couldn't access the drive. And this was, it wasn't backed up to anything else. And... I was in a panic and found myself, you know, um, hanging out with a bunch of people later that evening and not really being able to focus on the conversation at all. It was just like <laughs> yeah, in the morning. And I brought it up uh, with this one person and I was like, yeah, I just don't know what's going on with this. I don't even know who to call. This might have been 20 years ago, so it was even harder to find people to work on these sorts of things at the time, you know, because uh, they're just these massive computers, these printed circuit boards upon circuit boards. And anyways, like I, I told her about it, and she was a bit of a computer person, at least told me she was, She's that uh, she thought she could uh, save this hard drive, save this album, uh, but we would need to take apart this thing. And this is before I'd sought any other advice. <laughs> so uh, we did get together one evening, and we took it apart, like the plastic shield and all the bits, and we, you know, uh, ordered all the screws, so we made sure we, you know, knew where everything had come from, um, and uh, about an hour into the procedure, we're just about to extract the hard drive. Essentially, she, she looks at me like she's seen a ghost, and I was like, "What's up?" I was like, um, it's gone. I was like, "Why?" I, like, I forgot to put on the static gloves, the anti-static gloves. Excuse me, which is uh, you need white anti-static cotton gloves when you're taking apart most computers. That's why people do them so they don't damage hard drives. And uh, sure enough, uh, the hard drive was gone forever. So God. maybe that was the worst advice in a way, because uh, I'd worked bloody hard on that, like a year and a half. And um, it was the original version of my two, I don't know, uh, later to be 2008 album, Double Nature. Uh, which I we did include some tracks from here. So yeah, that was it was done. Like it was ready to go to mastering, and you know there was no other copy. <laughs> like I think I had one song I'd mixed to cassette. <laughs> you know, it's like so I had to. It was the first time I'd ever had to, and it's not, uh, of course, entirely her fault at all. But I should have taken it to a. I learned uh, 
in retrospect that yeah, I could have just taken it to a computer guy and they would have dumped it on a USB key for me. <laughs> that was just beyond me at the time. You know, like, yeah. what do you mean? You, you can transfer this. It's in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, but it, it, in a way, maybe it was good. I mean, I had to literally, uh, you know, rewrite, re-record the entire album. And because I don't use charts and take notes about mic placement or certain sounds I used. It was, I did my best to recreate it. And it was frustrating at times. And I, I can still recall the earlier version in my memory, which I guess is uh, the, the only person who will ever have that experience. But uh, maybe that answers your question. Yeah. Do you think the uh, album Double Nature, the version that survived, the one that, from which we played a few tracks, do you think that, was better for having essentially started again from scratch or do you think the original um, lost album was the superior recording i'm i'm inclined to think the latter is true uh because i in general i uh i'm, I'm happy with double nature and and people have enjoyed it uh but these, yeah, these, these, these earlier things that the first, you know, the first version, the first draft, there's just something to it. Like the energy that is hard to match. It's really hard to recreate there. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it was, you know, I think on that album, <laughs> it was the first time that I felt like confident as a, you know, a writer or composer or musician, um, you know, in terms of the first and, and the second record, and, you know, it was, a, it was a good, uh, it was a real mind bender for me at the time, you know, to try to, you know, I really wanted to re recreate it verbatim and I got pretty damn close. Let's take a listen to Secret Agent and the Hydra Line. Creeps on the water Must be some sort of reptile Isn't that right, my friend Margaret? Keep that smile where it is I got a camera I think I'll capture it Man dangles from Hydroline, I read the headline. He was dangling for sure. And it related somehow to the crease on the water, like a mark in my thigh. He must be some sort of secret agent. He must be apprehended immediately after the storm. We head back to my house and got so warm Wrapping in the warm static wound blankets And the notches in my foot Seem like there's no time For someone of your nature Who is dividing between all All of the prototypes they kept them shut from the public eye And science and technology Relate to the body 
this body of mine and its in-depth chemistry. Grease on the water There must be some sort of way to take this down Take this down without crease Folding like a leaf into my hand Ships all rot Cords. By the tube she sat patiently with a deploying smile. Crease on the water must be some sort of reptile. So Jeff, um, it's interesting. I, I am not musically inclined in the slightest. I, the only class I ever failed, I think, was grade five music. Got a whole forty-five percent. Okay. I could not master hot cross buns on the recorder. That's bad. And ended up losing the recorder. Probably, probably one of those things where something of a something of a Freudian slip. I probably yeah. wanted to lose it, and then it just so happened that day I didn't lock my locker or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. I mean, but yet I I tread in many circles where there's at least one musician there. Right. Yeah. My closest friend is a musician. Right. For example, and the Sorry for last four guests, including yourself, on this program have all been musicians, and not right. by design. It just seems to be the way it's gone, and I don't know if it's just they're more more agreeable than than others. I'm not sure. Well, what do you think as a, as a musician? Do you enjoy hanging out with other musicians socially? <laughs> uh, that depends. I mean, yes. I mean, my answer would be largely yes to that question. Yeah, I love the musical exchange, for sure. Sometimes it can just be, you know, uh, getting into the details of something you love, you know, a particular piece or whatever or, you know, the act of exchange and live music. Um, but uh, I don't know. What is the musician mentality? Uh, no group is monolithic, of course. Uh, but there's some part uh, that makes me think that uh, musicians want to be more agreeable. They want to be open to everything. Mm -hmm. That's positive, right? <laughs> why, why do you think that is? Uh, because I think that's part of the craft and, you know, the muse. Like, if you're going to access that as a musician or a writer, then you should be 
you should reflect that in the rest of your life, you know, socially, you know, uh, consciously, uh, in an outward way, perhaps. I could be wrong. Uh, but, you know, musicians are also uh, a fickle bunch, mm. you know, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, and I don't know, can I say that about writers or visual artists okay you know i'm just doing some basic breakdown here like i find mm -hmm. writers a little more controlled in their behavior overall okay that's just my experience uh and visual artists you know maybe something in that uh tactile relationship in particular that uh, seems to ground them a little more okay that's, but yeah musicians seem a little more wacky for yeah. sure a little more vegas for sure <laughs> you know. Let me ask you this on the on the opposite side of things. We've talked about here the I guess for lack of a better term, the good musician, the kind of musician you'd like to get to know. Is there a musician that you've met where regardless of whatever talent they have, you were just so disgusted by them, their temperament, their attitude, that you just never wanted to see them again? Oh wow. Um well I, I can think of people who were um, perhaps uh, playing the role of musician slash songwriter in certain situations, but clearly weren't, uh, you know, comfortable with that role, but had sort of found themselves there through um, various opportunities and, um, and their ultimate you know, kind of package was that of uh, reeking of uh, shame or lack of self-confidence. And those few encounters with that sort of hanger-on, you know, uh, character in industry sort of circles, it, you will see it for sure. Uh, and those are maybe the few moments in which I felt you know, I'll use your word, perhaps disgusted <laughs> with another performer, uh, the abuse of the role perhaps is uh, what I'm responding to there specifically. Mm. But it, I, you know, in, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a few people backstage make fusses about uh, catering and stuff. And it seems like, uh, well, you're going to see that anywhere, right? There's always going to be a schmuck. Um, in terms of their actual performance, yeah, I've seen some pretty uh, weird performances slash political statements that uh, kind of make my stomach turn, but uh, I won't name any. Have you ever seen anything? I, I when you talk about political, I just popped into my head that famous incident where Sinead O'Connor tore the picture of Pope John Paul II in two on Saturday Night Live and said something like, right. what "Was it fight the real enemy or something like that?" Right. Have you ever seen anything like that? Personally, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I have seen some sort of weird stuff in the music sit setting, if you will. Um, the, the only thing that really comes to mind that was kind of new, or in that sense, in my exposure in a live setting, was in Tel Aviv in the 90s going to an easter rave hmm. yeah 
uh, we went to an Easter rave and, um, well, first what, what is an Easter <laughs> rave? Yeah. Good question. Uh, well, it's everything you imagine, uh, sacrilege. Uh, you know, uh, women and men half naked on crosses oh, on a stage covered in blood writhing, uh, while you sat on the couch and smoked opium and tried to dance, but just vomited some sort of rainbow in the street. You know, I was a young guy, um, stuff was happening in the sort of, uh, yeah, situations that, uh, one might find themselves in on occasion, not all the time. <laughs> that was uh, pretty profound. And, and I was told that we were there for the music. I was pretty sure. I looked around and there seemed to be about a thousand zombies. Hmm. I thought, wow, um, I'm not, remind me not to hang out here again. But I also learned a lot. And I thought, wow, you know, everybody talked about the music, you know, and the colors. It's like, yeah, I kind of get that. Yeah. I don't know. It wasn't like uh, listening to a Willie Nelson song, that's for sure. Right. What At was, that volume. If I can ask you this, what was opium like? Oh, it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, you know, you float. You float around. Uh, I smoked it off this uh, piece of aluminum foil, as I recall. You know, it was passed to me. Mm. Uh, some sort of bowl-shaped aluminum foil makeshift thing. It's like, what is this? Oh, okay, well, you only live once. And uh, I remember floating. Yeah, like a, it was kind of like the train spotting movie a bit. Like that, uh, they do a good job of that world. I think I didn't spend any time there. No, when you say floating, Hopefully. was this like a was this like an out of body experience? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Watching it from above, very much so, or the potential to. Uh, yeah, it was, it was clearly there. We can see why people are drawn to that. And where yeah. did you go? Did you stay at the rave or did you go yeah, beyond? I stayed, I stayed at the rave mostly, and I just went above the crowd like a camera, like a drone, and like saw people individually, um, you know, interacting. And then I would come back to myself like 75 feet away and felt like, you know, it's hard to say, uh, you know, <laughs> whether that, obviously how we calculate the realness of that experience, but it was uh, pretty convincing. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, you know, it uh, it wasn't. It was kind of. There were lots of interesting drugs going around, lots of party drugs, and I'm not a rave guy, you know, so I, I think that was the only time that I <laughs> uh, decided to go along with that experience. But it was. Uh, you know, I learned a lot, but um, the music and the performance were sort of the same thing. You know, it's pre-cell phone capture, pre-TikTok, Instagram. So you had to shock yourself all the much more, maybe. Now, um, do you think, uh, you mentioned like the pre-cell phone age, do you think the introduction of cell phones into seemingly every facet of life is has done anything to sully the live performance? Good question. Um, I mean, I enjoy seeing performances captured that way. Um, But, 
Yeah, I imagine it does or will account for a certain percentage of the population not attending, which will have results, obviously. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe like the whole mystique, you know, uh, I was really lucky to grow up in Ottawa at a certain time that a lot of music internationally was coming through town. And this was pre-MTV, pre-much music, give or take a year, not, not, not far off. So the only way to access it any of these people be on the radio was, you know, magazine shop or the occasional thing, you know, about the band on the radio. So when they came to town, there was really no clear image. It hadn't been established. It was so drenched in mystique. It was so kind of parceled together through various, you know, a patchwork of information that you put together. And um, you were left a lot more with imagination, I think, you know, um, it was profound, like, you know, uh, in the course of a year, I saw so many bands come through Ottawa. Um, and I, you know, I had some idea of their, you know, overall shtick, but it wasn't like, you weren't saturated with it, you know? So that whole experience was like, you know, I don't know, war of the world sort of thing, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I remember seeing Pink Floyd when I was a young kid, and I had some idea. I'd seen their posters, you know, I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> this giant hammer parading around, and then it's like, oh, a bunch of middle-aged white guys. Cool, looks like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, my dad would be like, yeah, this is, this, is, this, is, this is what it's all about, son. I was like, Really? So, I mean, you know, I was fed that too. I mean, that's a big part of my story too, is I came up at the very end of the functioning record industry, you know. Uh, it was still, but it was still a viable option. It actually was, you know. People got signed that I knew all over the place. They got million-dollar contracts that were kind of built in legalese that a lot of people skipped you know, which you had to return half the money and stuff. But there was still something happening. It seemed like, okay, like it's, it's, it's a crapshoot for sure. But, uh, you know, you do the right things, sort of keep your mouth shut, la, la, la. Might uh, wind up on a label for a year. Might get some exposure and some royalties, you know, down the line. Like this was, but I, you know, I don't know many people who are having that experience today at all like so it's i don't know what's going to happen with music you know if people drop out of music and it's just finally created by one entity uh we'll have a problem perhaps but i don't know well it does seem like it's becoming a lot more niche if you're avoiding i guess what's coming off the major record labels for example, I mean, you're on Bandcamp, and there's there's that, there's right. SoundCloud, there's MixCloud, there's a bunch of other platforms. Mm -hmm. Even just stick something up on YouTube or put it on Facebook or something, and yeah, and there you have it. And now it's much more dispersed. Like I'm aware of all of right. these these bands, and they're in my orbit. And then there's cool. you you know of all these ones. It's very interesting, and it is yeah a lot of fun. But of course, there isn't 
there isn't that um, perhaps at least generally speaking the same notoriety that a a band might have enjoyed in the in the eighties or. Well, it's not just about notoriety; it's about no. income, right? Like, like it's very practical. Mm. Um, you know, uh, this is a bit of a lottery. Um, it's a bit of a rig lottery. It always has been, you know, pre-internet. Um, and in part, I'm, you know, it's weird. I have a bit of a conflict. I'm all in favor of a, a board of governors or a vetting system that uh, you know would uh, go through all the stuff and determine you know what is worthy of the public's ears i see some value to that um or at least it seemed like it played that role successfully for a while um where we are now is a different place though uh with spotify in particular like on bandcamp um i can earn some money on Spotify, you don't, a person at my level does not earn money. Even if I gain exposure to more, a newer audience, like in the thousands or tens of thousands, the data uh, shows that those people don't link to paid uh, downloads on Bankit. They stay on the free streaming service right so that makes sense for a lot of the legacy artists like i'm on spot i have a spotify subscription i enjoy it um you know like but i don't think for a second that the bob marley estate you know <laughs> needs jeff pie's money mm. in any, any way shape or form and so don't bat an eye on at it but i don't think it works for folks like me, um, you're just, you know, it's really weird. Like I see people posting on social media on occasion, they're like Spotify stream, you know, numbers. And their earnings are literally like 18 cents. You mm. know, it's just like, if, if that's where we're at, how do you walk that back? Like, it just seems like that's that's the end, right? I mean, where do you go from there? I mean, well, yeah, if you can give people 18 cents, why would you give them 19? Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, we need to examine this more. Maybe we need to pay this, this same sort of attention that some people might, um, spend on their you know groceries perhaps and where their groceries come from can can we apply the same sort of you know uh think globally act locally uh philosophy in terms of this consumption in terms of okay well i'm not going to do spotify okay well spotify i'll have my spotify and that's where i go for the stones and my hey guys here's the remember this tune you know uh, but for the rest of it maybe you know, we have this d different diet, the way that we treat, you know, going to a gallery and, you know, uh, paying for somebody's work there. You know, it, it should be assigned a, a similar uh, value, you know, similar uh, weight. Um, you know, it, it's weird because there's the vinyl argument, right, too, right? You know, so that's, that doesn't seem to go away. Uh, our bands like small bands making money off their vinyl no 
the answer is overwhelmingly no across the board. It costs them money, literally. You, because you can't make 100 records. You can't make 50 records. You have to make 300 or 1,000, you know. And so uh, there's lots of things to consider. I, you know, like maybe if we treat Spotify like a, a Netflix sort of thing, like this, you know, movie prostitute, <laughs> you know, and uh, we assign a different value to, uh, you know, things that are locally grown, if you will. Uh, I'd be into that because there's enough people around me that deserve that attention, I think. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for joining us. You can check out the Yellow Jacket Avengers music at yellowjacketavenger.bandcamp.com. This is the Goethe Report. Good night. <laughs>